Section 1 of Supermind This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas. Supermind by Gordon Randall Garrett and Lawrence Janifer. Chapter 1 in 1914, it was enemy aliens. In 1930, it was wobblies. In 1957, it was fellow travelers. In 1971, it was insane telepaths. And in 1973, we don't know what the hell it is, said Andrew J. Burris, director of the FBI. He threw his hands in the air and looked baffled and confused. Kenneth J. Malone, tried to appear sympathetic. What, what is? he asked. Burris frowned and drummed his fingers on the big desk. Malone, he said, make sense and don't stutter. Stutter? Malone said. You said you didn't know what it was. What the hell it was? And I wanted to know what it was. That's just it, Burris said. I don't know. Malone sighed and repressed an impulse to scream. Now wait a minute, Chief, he started. Burris frowned again. Don't call me chief, he said. Malone nodded. Okay, he said. But if you don't know what it is, you must have some idea of what you don't know. I mean, is it larger than a bread box? Does it perform helpful tasks? Is it self-employed? Malone, Burris sighed. You ought to be on television. But? Let me explain, Burris said. His voice was calmer now and he spoke as if he were enunciating nothing but the most obvious and eternal truths. The country, he said, is going to hell in a handbasket. Malone nodded again. Well, after all, Chief, don't call me Chief, Burris said wearily. Anything you say, Malone agreed peacefully. He eyed the director of the FBI wearily. After all, it isn't anything new, he went on. The country's always been going to hell in a handbasket, one way or another. Look at Rome. Rome, Burris said. Sure, Malone said. Rome was always going to hell in a handbasket, and finally it, he paused. Finally it did, I guess, he said. Exactly, Burris said. And so are we, finally. He passed a hand over his forehead and stared past Malone at a spot on the wall. Malone turned and looked at the spot but saw nothing of interest. Malone, Burris said, and the FBI agent whirled around again. Yes, ch yes, he said. This time, Burris said, it isn't the same old story at all. This time it's different. Different, Malone said. Burris nodded. Look at it this way, he said. His eyes returned to the agent. Suppose you're a congressman, he went on, and you find evidence of inefficiency in the government. All right, Malone said agreeably. He had the feeling that if he waited around a little while, everything would make sense. And he was willing to wait. After all, he wasn't on assignment at the moment, and there was nothing pressing waiting for him. He was even between romances. If he waited long enough, he told himself, Andrew J. Burris might say something worth hearing. He looked attentive and eager. He considered leaning over the desk a little, to look even more eager, but decided against it. Burris might think he looked threatening. 
there was no telling. "'You're a congressman,' Burris said, "'and the government is inefficient. "'You find evidence of it. "'What do you do?' Malone blinked and thought for a second. It didn't take any longer than that to come up with the old, old answer. I'd start an investigation, he said. I'd get a committee, and I'd talk to a lot of newspaper editors and magazine editors, and maybe I'd go on television and talk some more, and my committee has a lot of meetings. Exactly, Burris said. And we talk a lot at the meetings, Malone went on, carried away, and get a lot of publicity, and we subpoena famous people, just as famous as we can get, except governors or presidents. Because you can't. They tried that back in the fifties, and it didn't work very well. And that gives us some more publicity. And when we have all the publicity we could possibly get... You stop, said Burris hurriedly. That's right, Malone said. We stop. And that's what I'd do. Of course, the problem of inefficiency is left exactly where it always was, Burris said. Nothing's been done about it. Naturally, Malone said, but think of all the lovely publicity and all the nice talk and the subpoenas and committees and everything. Sure, Burris said wearily, it's happened a thousand times. But Malone, that's the difference. It isn't happening this time. There was a short pause. What do you mean, Malone said at last? This time, Burris said, in a tone that sounded almost awed, they want to keep it a secret. A secret? Malone said, blinking. But that's... that's not the American way. Burris shrugged. It's uncongressmanlike anyhow, he said. But that's what they've done. Tiptoed over to me and whispered softly that the thing had to be investigated quietly. Naturally, they didn't give me any orders but only because they know they can't make one stick. They suggested it pretty strongly. Any reasons, Malone said. The whole idea interested him strangely. It was odd, and he found himself almost liking odd cases lately. That is, he amended hurriedly, if they didn't get too odd. Oh, they had reasons all right, Burris said. It took a little coaxing, but I managed to pry some loose. You see, every one of them found inefficiency in his own department, and everyone knows that other men are investigating inefficiency. Oh, Malone said. That's right, Burris said. Every one of them came up to me to get me to prove that the goof-ups in his particular department weren't his fault. That covers them in case one of the others happens to light into the department. Well, it must be somebody's fault, Malone said. It isn't theirs, Burris said wearily. I ought to know. They told me. At great length, Malone. Malone felt a stab of honest pity. How many so far, he asked. Six, Burris said. Four representatives and two senators. Only two, Malone said. Well, Burris said, the Senate is so much smaller. And besides, we may get more. As a matter of fact, Senator Lefferts is worth any six representatives all by himself. He is, Malone said, puzzled. Senator Lefferts was not one of his favorite people, nor, as far as he knew, did the somewhat excitable senator hold any place of honor in the heart of Andrew J. Burris. I mean a story, Burris said. I never heard anything like it, at least not since the Bilbo days, and I've only heard about those, he added hurriedly. What story, Malone said. 
He talked about inefficiency. Not exactly, Burris said carefully. He said that somebody was out to get him, him personally. He said somebody was trying to discredit him by sabotaging all his legislative plans. Well, Malone said, feeling that some comment was called for, three cheers. That isn't the point, Burris snapped. No matter how we feel about Senator Lefferts or his legislative plans, we're sworn to protect him, and he says they're out to get him. They, Malone said. You know, Burris said, shrugging, the great they, the invisible enemies all around, working against him. Oh, Malone said, paranoid. He had always thought Senator Lefferts was slightly on the batty side, and the idea of real paranoia didn't come as too much of a surprise. After all, when a man was batty to start out with, and he even looked like a vampire, Malone thought confusedly. As far as paranoia is concerned, Burris said, I've checked with one of our own psych men, and he'll back it up. Lefferts has definite paranoid tendencies, he said. Well then, Malone said, that's that. Burris shook his head. It isn't that simple, he said. You see, Malone, there's some evidence that somebody is working against him. The American public, with any luck at all, Malone said. No, Burris said, an enemy. Somebody sabotaging his plans, really. Malone shook his head. You're crazy, he said. Burris looked shocked. Malone, I'm the director of the FBI, he said. And if you insist on being disrespectful... Sorry, Malone murmured, but... I am perfectly sane, Burris said slowly. It's Senator Lefferts who's crazy. The only trouble is, he has evidence to show he's not. Malone thought about odd cases and suddenly wished he were somewhere else, anywhere else. This one showed sudden signs of developing into something positively bizarre. I see, he said, wondering if he did. After all, Burris said in a voice that attempted to sound reasonable, a paranoid has just as much right to be persecuted as anybody else, doesn't he? Sure, Malone said, everybody has rights. But what do you want me to do about that? About their rights, Burris said. Nothing, Malone, nothing. I mean, Malone said patiently, about whatever it is that's going on. Burris took a deep breath. His hand clasped behind his head, and he looked up at the ceiling. He seemed perfectly relaxed. That, Malone knew, was a bad sign. It meant that there was a dirty job coming, a job nobody wanted to do, and one Burris was determined to pass off on him. He sighed and tried to get resigned. Well, the FBI director said, the only actual trouble we can pinpoint is that there seems to be a great many errors occurring in the paperwork, more than usual. People get tired, Malone said tentatively. But computer secretary calculating machines don't, Burris said. And that's where the errors are, in the computer secretaries down in the Senate office building. I think you'd better start out there. Sure, Malone said sadly. See if there's any mechanical or electrical defect in any of those computers, Burris said. Talk to the computer technicians. Find out what's causing all these errors. Yes, sir, Malone said. He was still trying to feel resigned, 
but he wasn't succeeding very well. And if you don't find anything, Burris began. I'll come right back, Malone said instantly. No, Burris said, you keep on looking. I do? You do, Burris said. After all, there has to be something wrong. Sure, Malone said, if you say so, but... There are interview tapes, Burris said, and the reports the congressman brought in. You can go through those. Malone sighed. I guess so, he said. And there must be thousands of other things to do, Burris said. Well, Malone began cautiously. You'll be able to think of them, Burris said heartily. I know you will. I have confidence in you, Malone, confidence. Thanks, Malone said sadly. You just keep me posted from time to time on what you're doing and what ideas you get, Burris said. I'm leaving the whole thing in your hands, Malone, and I'm sure you won't disappoint me. I'll try, Malone said. I know you will, Burris said warmly, and no matter how long it takes, I know you'll succeed. No matter how long it takes, Malone said hesitantly. That's right, Burris said. You can do it, Malone, you can do it. Malone nodded slowly. I hope so, he said. Well, I, well, I'll start out right away, then. He turned. Before he could make another move, Burris said, wait. Malone turned again, hope in his eyes. Yes, sir, he said. When you leave, Burris began, and the hope disappeared. When you leave, he went on, please do one little favor for me, just one little favor, because I'm an old, tired man, and I'm not used to things any more. Sure, Malone said. Anything, Chief. Don't call me. Sorry, Malone said. Burris breathed heavily. When you leave, he said, please, please use the door. But? Malone, Burris said. I've tried, I've really tried, believe me. I've tried to get used to the fact that you can teleport, but... It's useful, Malone said, in my work. I can see that, Burris said. And I don't want you to, well, to stop doing it. By no means. It's just that it sort of unnerves me, if you see what I mean. No matter how useful it is for the FBI to have an agent who can go instantaneously from one place to another, it unnerves me. He sighed. I can't get used to seeing you disappear like an overdried soap bubble alone. It does something to me here. He placed a hand directly over his sternum and sighed again. I can understand that, Malone said. It unnerved me, too. The first time I saw it, I thought I was going crazy when that kid, Mike Fayo, winked out like a light. But then we got him, and some FBI agents besides me have learned the trick. He stopped there, wondering if he'd been tactful. After all, it took a latent ability to learn teleportation, and some people had it, while others didn't. Malone, with a few other agents, did. Burris evidently didn't, so he couldn't teleport, no matter how hard he tried or how many lessons he took. Well, Burris said, I'm still unnerved, so please, Malone, when you come in here or go out, use the door, all right? Yes, sir, Malone said. He turned and went out. As he opened the door, he could almost hear Burris's sigh of relief. Then he banged it shut behind him, and feeling that he might as well continue with his space-bound existence, walked all the way to the elevator 
and rode it down to the FBI laboratories. The labs, highly efficient and divided into dozens of departments, covered several floors. Malone passed through the fingerprint section, filled with technicians doing strange things to great charts and slides, and frowning over tiny pieces of material and photographs. Then came forgery detection, involving many more technicians, many more slides and charts, and tiny pieces of things and photographs, and even a witness or two sitting on the white bench at one side and looking lost and somehow civilian. Identification classified was next, a great barn of a room filled with index files. The real index files were in the sub-basement, here on microfilm, were only the basic divisions. A man was standing in front of one of the files, frowning at it. Malone went on by without stopping. Cosmetic surgery classification came next. Here there were more indexes, and there were also charts and slides. There was an agent sitting on a bench looking bored, while two female technicians, classified as O and U, for old and ugly in Malone's mind, fluttered around him, deciding what disguises were possible, and which of those was indicated for the particular job on hand. Malone waved to the agent, who he knew very slightly, and went on. He felt vaguely regretful that the FBI couldn't hire prettier girls for cosmetic surgery, but the trouble was that pretty girls fell for the agents and vice versa, and this led to an unfortunate tendency toward only handsome and virile-looking disguises. The O&U division was unfortunate, he decided, but a necessity. Chemical Analysis 3 was next. The Chemical Analysis section was scattered over several floors, with the first stages up above. Division 3, Malone remembered, was devoted to non-poisonous substances, like clay and sand found in boots or trouser cuffs cigar ashes and such. They were placed on the same floor as fingerprints to allow free and frequent passage between the sections on the problems of plastic prints, made in putty or like substances, and visible prints made when the hand is covered with a visible substance, like blood, ketchup, or glue. Malone found what he was looking for at the very end of the floor. It was the computer section a large room filled with humming, clacking, and buzzing machines of an ancient vintage, muttering to themselves as they worked, and newer machines which were smaller and more silent. Lights were lighting, and bells were ringing softly. Relays were relaying, and the whole room was a gigantic maze of calculating and control machines. What space wasn't filled by machines themselves was filled by workbenches, all littered with an assortment of gears, tubes, spare relays, transistors, wires, rods, bolts, resistors, and all the other paraphernalia used in building the machines and repairing them. Beyond the basic room were other smaller rooms, each assigned to a particular kind of computer work. The narrow aisles were choked here and there with men who looked up as Malone passed by, but most of them gave him one quick glance and went back to work. A few didn't even do that, but went right on concentrating on their jobs. 
Malone headed for a man working all alone in front of a workbench, frowning down at a complicated-looking mechanism that seemed to have neither head nor tail, and prodding at it with a long, thin screwdriver. The man was thin, too, but not very long. He was a little under average height, and he had straight black hair, thick lensed glasses, and a studious expression, even when he was frowning. He looked as if the mechanism were a student who had cut too many classes, and he was being kind but firm with it. Malone managed to get to the man's side and coughed discreetly. There was no response. Fred, he said. The screwdriver waggled a little. Malone wasn't quite sure that the man was breathing. Fred Mitchell, he said. Mitchell didn't look up. Another second passed. Hey, Malone said. Then he closed his eyes and took a deep breath. Fred, he said in a loud, reasonable-sounding voice, the State Department's translator has started to talk pig Latin. Mitchell straightened up as if somebody had jabbed him with a pin. The screwdriver waved wildly in the air for a second and then pointed at Malone. That's impossible, Mitchell said in a flat, precise voice. Simply impossible. It doesn't have a pig Latin circuit. It can't possibly. He blinked and seemed to see Malone for the first time. Oh, he said, hello, Malone. What can I do for you? Malone smiled, feeling a little victorious at having got through the Mitchell armor, which was almost impregnable when there was a job in hand. I've been standing here talking to you for some time. Oh, have you? Mitchell said. I was busy. That obviously explained that. Malone shrugged. I want you to help me check over some calculators, Fred, he said. We've had some reports that some of the government machines are out of kilter, and I'd like you to go over them for me. Out of kilter, Fred Mitchell said. No, you can forget about it. It's absolutely unnecessary to make a check, believe me. Absolutely. Forget it. He smiled suddenly. I suppose it's some kind of joke, isn't it? He said, just a trifle uncertainly. Fred Mitchell's world, while pleasant, did not include much humor, Malone knew. It's supposed to be funny, he said, in the same flat, precise voice. It isn't funny, Malone said. Fred sighed. Then they're obviously lying, he said, and that's all there is to it. Why bother me with it? Lying, Fred, Malone said. Certainly, Fred said. He looked at the machinery with longing. Malone took a breath. How do you know, he said. Fred sighed. It's perfectly obvious, he said in a patient tone. Since the State Department's translator has no pig Latin circuit, it can't possibly be talking pig Latin. I will admit that such a circuit would be relatively easy to build, though it would have no utility as far as I can see. Except, of course, for a joke, he paused. Joke, he said, in a slightly uneasy tone. Sure, Malone said, joke. Mitchell looked relieved. Very well, then, he began, since... Wait a minute, Malone said. The pig Latin is a joke, that's right. But I'm not talking about pig Latin. You're not, Mitchell asked, surprised. No, Malone said. Mitchell frowned. But you said, he began... A joke, Malone said. You were perfectly right. 
The pig Latin is a joke. He waited for Fred's expression to clear and then added, But what I want to talk to you about isn't. It sounds very confused, Fred said after a pause. Not at all the sort of thing that, that usually goes on. You have no idea, Malone said. It's about the political machines, all right. But it isn't anything as simple as pig Latin, he explained, taking his time over it. When he had finished, Fred was nodding his head slowly. I see, he said. I understand just what you want me to do. Good, Malone said. I'll take a team over to the Senate office building, Fred said, and check the computer secretaries there. That way, you see, I'll be able to do a full running check on them without taking any one machine out of operation for too long. Sure, Malone said. And it shouldn't take long, Fred went on, to find out just what the trouble is. He looked very confident. How long? Malone asked. Fred shrugged. Oh, he said, five or six days. Malone repressed an impulse to scream. Days, he said. I mean, well, look, Fred, it's important, very important. Can't you do the job any faster? Fred gave a little sigh. Checking and repairing all those machines, he said, is an extremely complex job. Sometimes, Malone, I don't think you realize quite how complex and how delicate a job it is to deal with such a high-order machine. Why? Wait a minute, Malone said. Check and repair them? Of course, Fred said. But I don't want them repaired, Malone said. Seeing the look of horror on Fred's face, he added hastily, I only want to report from you on what's wrong, whether they are actually making errors or not. And if they are making errors, just what's making them do it? And just what kind of errors? See? Fred nodded very slowly. But I can't just leave them there, he said, piteously, in pieces and everything. It isn't right, Malone. It just isn't right. Well then, Malone said with energy, you go right ahead and repair them, if you want to. Fix them all up, but you can do that after you make the report to me, can't you? I, Fred hesitated, I'd plan to check and repair each machine on an individual basis. The Congress can allow for a short suspension, Malone said. Anyhow, they can now, or as soon as I get the word to them. Suppose you check all the machines first, and then get around to the repair work. It's not the best way, Fred demurred. Malone discovered that it was his turn to sigh. Is it the fastest, he said? Fred nodded. Then it's the best, Malone said. How long? Fred rolled his eyes to the ceiling and calculated silently for a second. Tomorrow morning, he announced, returning his gaze to Malone. Fine, Malone said, fine. But? Never mind the buts, Malone said hurriedly. I'll count on hearing from you tomorrow morning. All right. And if it looks like sabotage, Malone added, if the errors aren't caused by normal wear and tear on the machines, you let me know right away. Phone me. Don't waste an instant. I'll... I'll start right away, Fred said heavily. He looked sadly at the mechanism he had been working on and put his screwdriver down next to it. It looked to Malone as if he were putting flowers on the grave of a dear departed. I'll get a team together, Fred added. He gave the mechanism and screwdriver 
one last fond parting look and tore himself away. Malone looked after him for a second, thinking of nothing in particular, and then turned in the opposite direction and headed back toward the elevator. As he walked, he began to feel more and more pleased with himself. After all, he'd gotten the investigation started, hadn't he? And now all he had to do was to go back to his office and read some reports and listen to some interview tapes, and then he could go home. The reports and the interview tapes didn't exactly sound like fun, Malone thought, but at the same time they seemed fairly innocent. He would work his way through them grimly, and maybe he would even indulge his most secret vice and smoke a cigar or two to make the work pass more pleasantly. Soon enough, he told himself, they would be finished. Sometimes, though, he regretted the reputation he'd gotten. It had been bad enough in the old days, the pre-1971 days, when Malone had thought he was just lucky. Burris had called him a boy wonder then, when he had cracked three difficult cases in a row. Being just lucky had made it a little tough to live with the boy wonder label. After all, Malone thought, it wasn't actually as if he had done anything. But since 1971, and the case of the telepathic spy, things had gotten worse, much worse. Now Malone wasn't just lucky anymore. Instead, he could teleport, and he could even foretell the future a little, in a dim sort of way. He caught the telepathic spy that way, and when the case of the teleporting juvenile delinquents had come up, he had been assigned to that one, too, and he had cracked it. Now Burris seemed to think of him as a kind of god, and gave him all the tough, dirty jobs. And if he wasn't just lucky any more, Malone couldn't think of himself as a fearless, heroic FBI agent either. He just wasn't the type. He was, well, talented. That was the word he told himself, talented. He had all these talents and they made him look like something spectacular to Burris and the other FBI men. But he wasn't really. He hadn't done anything really tough to get his talents. They'd just happened to him. Nobody, though, seemed to believe that. He heaved a little sigh and stepped into the waiting elevator. There were, after all, he thought, compensations. He'd had some good times, and the talents did come in handy and he did have his pick of the vacation schedule lately, and he had met some lovely girls. And besides, he told himself savagely, as the elevator shot upward, he wasn't going to do anything except return to his office and read some reports and listen to some tapes. And then he was going to go home and sleep all night peacefully. And in the morning, Mitchell was going to call him up and tell him that the computer secretaries needed nothing more than a little repair. He'd say they were getting old, and he'd be a little pathetic about it, but it wouldn't be anything serious. Malone would send out orders to get the machines repaired, and that would be that. And then the next case would be something more normal and exciting, like a bank robbery or a kidnapping involving a gorgeous blonde who would be so grateful to Malone that he had stepped out of the elevator and gone down the corridor without noticing it. He pushed at his own office door 
and walked into the outer room. The train of thought he had been following was very nice, and sounded very attractive indeed, he told himself. Unfortunately, he didn't believe it. His prescient ability, functioning with its usual efficient aplomb, told Malone that things would not be better or simpler in the morning. They would be worse and more complicated. They would be quite a lot worse. And, as usual, that prescience was perfectly accurate. End of Chapter 1